Would you take your Bibles with me and turn to the last chapter in 1 Samuel? 1 Samuel chapter 31. Well, the story of Saul comes to an end, along with the, the uh, book of 1 Samuel also comes to an end. A leader that started out with humility and obedience and great promise ended up violently and openly defying God and His law in two specific ways. One was disobeying God with regard to the Amalekites, and the other was uh, consulting the witch at Endor. In chapter 31, we learn of the final demise of King Saul, and we would do well to learn from his negative example and to learn from the larger picture of what God is doing. And so that's what uh, I think uh, is the point of, of what we're going to be looking at tonight. I want to look, learn from King Saul's demise, his negative example, and then see what God is doing in the bigger picture. So let me read our text for us, beginning in verse 1. This is the Word of God. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. The Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines killed Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malchashua, the sons of Saul. The battle went heavily against Saul, and the archers hit him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and pierce me through with it, otherwise these uncircumcised will come and pierce me through and make sport of me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. So Saul took his sword and fell on it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died with his three sons, his armor-bearer, and all his men on that day together. When the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley with those who were beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned the cities and fled, and then the Philistines came in and lived there. It came about on the next day... When the Philistines came to strip the slain, that they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. And they cut off his head and stripped off his weapons and sent them throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. And they put his weapons in the temple at Ashtaroth and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. Now, when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men rose and walked all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his son from the wall of Bethshan. And they came to Jabesh and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree at Jabesh and fasted seven days. In this chapter, we see that sometimes God uses the wicked to judge his people. And part of God's larger plan, he's, he's actually bringing judgment upon his people for asking for a king uh, when God was their king, remember the this is their this is Israel's first king, and God had been leading them on His own, apart from any human mediator, uh, essentially apart from any human theocratic leader, and and now um, and now they they asked for a king because they wanted to be like the other nations, and so one of the ways that God judges them is by allowing their king to die in battle. In verses 1 through 6, we see that Saul's kingdom is taken from him. Saul's kingdom is taken from him. God had told Saul that this would happen. Do you remember? Prophet Samuel said um, that, that your kingdom is going to be taken from you and given to someone better, you, better than you. Chapter 15, verse 28, following his sin um, with disobeying God regarding the Malachites, not fully um, obeying God there. 
And then the spirit of Samuel in uh, chapter 28 also told Saul the same thing. But this time he became more specific. Not only is the kingdom going to be taken away from you and given to someone better, but it's going to be taken away from you and given to David. And now uh, Saul knew what he probably knew for many years, and that was that David was going to be the next king. And so now God is following through on this promise that, that Saul's kingdom is going to be taken away from him. And the way that God is taking the kingdom away from Saul is through the attack of the Philistines. The Philistines thought that this would be a perfect opportunity to attack Israel because Israel apparently had been weakened because, do you remember, uh, David was kind of their mercenary. He was working for them, supposedly, and he was supposed to be going to southern Israel and, and weakening them by attacking some of his own people. Well, that's not what he was actually doing. He was killing Israel's enemies, but, but Achish didn't know that. And so he thought this is a perfect opportunity for us to take Israel out completely and to take over their land. And so they used this, um, this battle to do that. And uh, so the Philistines made the 50-mile trip from Aphek, where they were, up to Mount Gilboa to begin their attack. And the Philistines were very advanced in warfare. They had many chariots and, um, and their weaponry was was uh, advanced technologically as well, so th- they would be able to have a huge advantage on Israel, uh, not, not to mention the number advantage they likely would have had as well. And the result is, in verses 2 and 3, that, that the Philistine attack uh, is so significant that they're able to overcome the people and make it all the way into Saul and his three sons. Now, normally the three... Four, in this case, four important military leaders like that wouldn't be on the front line, right? They would be back uh, handling strategy and and often not even engaged in the battle. But this war was uh, so lopsided in how well that the Philistines were doing that they were able to to overpower. I think that's, uh, let me see, overtook is the word there in verse 2. The Philistines overtook Saul and his sons. So they they overpowered Israel to that point where they were able to to get into Saul and and, uh, at least shoot him with an arrow, um, and, and his three sons died as well. Well, in verses 4 and 5, Saul's in a desperate state. His wound that he received from the arrow was going to result in his eventual death. But he re- reasoned in his own mind that if, if, he didn't, if he didn't die before the Philistines got to him, that he would be, um, he would be made a... a made a public spectacle by the Philistines. Maybe he remembered the story of what happened to, to Samson not too many decades earlier, right? Or, or centuries earlier when, uh, when the Philistines got a hold of Samson in his weakened state. They made a public spectacle of him, put him on, on display at a, a party so that all could see what a, what a weakling he is and how the Philistines had overcome him. And Saul didn't want to be in that kind of position. Um, he didn't, I don't think it would have been good for his own personal ego, but I also think it would have been a disgrace to God that Israel's king is on public display for the the Philistines and and all of the Philistines to see. And so he he probably isn't thinking spiritually here, but he's probably thinking um, uh, uh, just just for his own benefit that that he didn't want to be that kind of person. So he asked his armor bearer to kill him. His armor bearer apparently was much like David, unwilling to touch the Lord's anointed, unwilling to kill the Lord's anointed king. 
And so he wouldn't do it. And so Saul, in verse 4, kills himself. At the end of verse 4, he took a sword and fell on it. And we'll talk about this a little bit more next week because there's going to be a, a, a conflicting report about how Saul died. And, and so we'll, we'll address that when we get to 2 Samuel chapter 1. When his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead in verse 5, he killed himself as well. In verse 6, we have a summary of the battle. So Saul's kingdom is taken from him through the attack of the Philistines. Secondly, we see that Saul's people are scared. When the men of Israel, verse 7, who were on the other side of the valley with those who were beyond the Jordan, saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and the sons were dead, they abandoned the cities and fled. And then the Philistines came and lived there. So apparently they're on the other side of the Jordan. These people are not involved in the battle. Maybe they're still um, hanging out in their cities and, and uh, farming some of their own land. And yet they hear the news that Israel loses badly and that Saul and his sons are dead. And so they know that the next step is for Phil, the Philistines to come in and, um, and take out the, the, the rest of the surrounding cities. And so instead of allowing the Philistines to do that, they, they simply abandon their own towns, their own houses, and the Philistines move in and basically occupy this newly won territory. This was kind of the spoils, part of the spoils of their, their battle. In verses 8 through 10, we see that Saul's body is defamed. Saul's body is defamed. After a night of rest for the Philistines, they decide to go back out to the field and, and pillage, or maybe not pillage, but, but gather all the weapons and valuables from all the bodies and uh, see what they can, they can scavenge, uh, they can, they can uh, round up, and they find Saul and his three sons. And so they decide that this is a perfect opportunity for them to take their dead bodies and make a mockery of them. And so they cut off their heads, Saul and his sons, and then they send a messenger around to the towns, the Philistine towns, with the head in their hands to show that they had defeated the, the powerful Israel the, the powerful nation of Israel, that is Saul and, and his sons. And then the, the weapons were taken to the temple in verse 10. Uh, they were taken to display kind of a symbol of victory. Maybe this would be like a museum type thing. Like you, when you come to the temple, you see that our God won over their God, right? Our, our God beat Israel's God. And so we're, we're better than they are, kind of like uh, early in, in 1 Samuel when when they captured the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant and brought it to, to the temple of Dagon. Uh, this is something similar. They've taken the weapons of the warfare, putting them into uh, their own temple. This is much like what Israel would do with the weapons of Goliath. You remember they took his head, that David cut off his head and took his head to Jerusalem to show that he had won decisively over the Philistines. And then they took the sword and put it in the tabernacle at Nob. And that, that would be important later for David. Uh, so Saul is defamed, his, his body is defamed, their bodies are, are hung on a wall at Beth Shan to show that, hey, we've defeated these people. And maybe that's a modern day example of that might be when radical Muslims chop off the heads of Americans or hang their bodies in a public square to show that, hey, we're better than, than they are. We've defeated them. Here's your great military uh, uh, soldiers and we've, we've got hold of them. And uh, and this is the way for them to, to make a mockery of Israel. But I think in a deeper way uh, for Israel, it shows that they've supposedly beaten, beaten Israel's God. In verses 11 through 13, we see that Saul's body is recovered and honored. 
It's recovered and honored. Um, Verse 11 says, Now when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men rose and walked all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bashan. And they came to Jabesh and burned them there. So the news of Saul's death had spread quickly throughout the Philistines' territory, but it also spread quickly throughout the territory of Israel as well. And so when these people from Jabesh-Gilead, which is just to the east of the Jordan River, heard about this, they wanted to move very quickly. And they probably moved through the cloak of night so that they could steal these bodies back from the Philistines. Um, These people from Jabesh-Gilead, if you remember in chapter 11, were indebted to Saul. Saul, back when he was... um, when he was doing well as king, or early on in his in his rule, uh, one of his first, I think his very first military campaign was against the Ammonites. The Ammonites had come in to the people of Jabesh Gilead and they were starting to attack. And, and Saul was the one who went in uh, with the help of Jonathan and helped to protect them and, and deliver Jabesh Gilead from the hand of the Ammonites. And so the, the Jabesh Gileadites didn't forget that. And so when they heard that Saul was dead, they wanted to make sure that they recovered his body and, and honored him rather than allowing his body to be dishonored. In verse 12, they, they recover this body. And, um, and in order uh, for them to do this, this would require them to take a walk of about 10 to 12 miles from, from Jabesh Gilead to Beth Shan. And they also would have had to risk their lives. And... and when they finally get to the bodies and take them back, they, they decide to burn the bodies. At the end of verse 12, they burned them there uh, uh, when they got back to Jabesh. And the purpose of this burning was not, I don't think, a cremation, but rather so that the Philistines would not be able to defame them anymore. Because if the Philistines said, well, we want these bodies back, well, we're, we're going to get them back and we're going to take them around and, and publicly um, make a mockery of them again, uh, the Jabesh Gileadites wanted to protect Saul's body and his son's bodies from that from 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 that happening, and so they they burned the bodies, and what remained were the bones, and they took the bones and buried them properly, and uh, and David's going to rebury them later on in Second Samuel. In verse thirteen, they mourn the death of of uh, Saul and his sons by fasting for seven days. All right, so let me give you six implications from this, and this is. Um, not just from this text, but, but as we kind of consider more of Saul's life as a whole, what we can learn from it. We'll say a little bit more about him next week, but I want to just uh, talk about Saul and what we can learn from him here. Six things. Number one, in a marathon, it's not enough to start well. In a marathon, it's not enough to start well. I like how uh, Don Howell helps us think about this in his commentary. He says that clear call... Impressive talents and initial humility are gifts to constantly be nurtured and never neglected or taken for granted. He's saying that in the context of the life of King Saul. Why? Because he started out on a great track. He had a great start. If if Saul were running a marathon, he would be doing very well at the beginning. He started out with a clear call, impressive talents, initial humility, right? Remember when they said, Saul, you're the king. Samuel said, you are, are he. And he's saying, how could I be it? I'm from the smallest tribe, and I'm from the smallest clan the smallest tribe, and the smallest family from the smallest clan. So how could I be the king? And, and Samuel says, you are the king. God has told you that you're the king. And then he didn't know what to do from there, 
right? It wasn't like he was, he was this arrogant guy who was constantly you know, winning over people with his winsome personality. And then all of a sudden he kind of forces his way into the kingdom. Into the kingdom. Listen, I'm taller than everyone else and I'm stronger than everyone else. And so uh, it makes sense that I'm your king. It was not like that at all. He was kind of, you remember when the, he, he actually got, an, uh, after he got anointed, actually when he got chosen by God in front of all the people, where was he hiding? He was hiding among the luggage. Where's Saul at? This guy's supposed to be our king. And so you have this initial seeming humility. You have this, um, this talent, these gifts that he has. And, and in his first battles, he's winning. And what, what Howell's saying in his commentary is that we need, to be, we need to be constantly nurturing and never neglecting to take those things for granted. Because we all, as individuals, can start well. I'm not talking about if you have a leader, leadership position only. That, that certainly is the case. But, but for any of us, we can start well, but it's not enough in a marathon to start well. Saul was born into a noble Benjamite family. He was the tallest in the land. He was a quiet, initially submissive young man. He initially was reluctant about becoming king. He avoided the spotlight. He wasn't seeking to be king. God was the one who chose him. And God takes Saul's gifts and adds to him this special ability by the, by the person of the Holy Spirit that comes upon him, this administrative ability to be able to rule even better than he could without the Spirit. And initially he does well. He's surrounded by good men. He does not retaliate when troublemakers come in chapter 10 and chapter 11. He rescues Jabesh Gilead from the Ammonites in chapter 11. And if the story ended at the end of chapter 11, we would think, you know, this makes for a happily ever after type of story about King Saul. And that's what we must recognize, that a good beginning does not guarantee a happy ending. We must continually cultivate character and reliance on God. We can never take for granted what God has started in us. We need to work like the Apostle Paul did all the way to the end to finish the race, to keep the faith. Saul didn't do that. He failed. He started well, and yet he turned away from God. And I don't think he ever fully trusted in God. I don't think he was a believer it doesn't seem to me that with all the things that he did and how he, he constantly ignored sound wisdom and instruction that, that he could be a believer. And, and, and so it's not enough to start well. It's like the plant that, that uh, Jesus talks about, the four kinds of soils, where you have some that kind of rise up initially with great joy. It seems like there's going to be great um, prosperity from this plant. And yet what What happens? It gets choked out by the cares of this world. And that's often what happens in the Christian life, or, or I should say people who claim to be Christians, right? They hear the gospel initially, they make a response, but it's not enough to start well. It's not enough to just sprout up as a plant. There needs to be fruit, and that can only happen when we rely on the Holy Spirit, when, when the Word is actually embraced, when the gospel is actually uh, really enjoyed and, and accepted. Number two, godless leaders will be remembered for uh, will be remembered for their spiritual spiritual failures. That, I think I have that out of. Oh yeah, okay. Looking at the wrong one. Godless leaders will be remembered for their spiritual failures. Saul was a man of great military victories, as David's going to sing about in Second Samuel one. But those were overshadowed by his spiritual failures, right? He, 
he sacrificed to the priest without waiting for Samuel. Do you remember that time where he goes to the, the, uh, the tabernacle and he's waiting uh, for Samuel to get there and he's supposed to wait seven days and he gets to not quite the end of the seventh day. Samuel still hasn't come and the Philistines are closing in and Saul needs to know what to do. And so he, he just says, I'm just going to make the sacrifice myself and God will talk to me. Samuel said, you should not have done that. And then in chapter 15 with the partial obedience regard regarding the ban of the Amalekites and then calling on the spirit of Samuel through the witch at Endor. What we remember Saul for, and I think rightfully so, is his spiritual failures. All right, so next, number three. Even godless leaders can be honored for the good that they did. Even godless leaders can, remember, can be honored for the good that they did. Sometimes it's easy for us to look at a guy like Saul who turned away from God and, and just recolor, um, uh, recolor the history of their leadership with a black marker. You know, they, they started out strong and they finished badly, and so we want to go back with a big black marker on all of their history and go, you know, that they, their whole history was worthless. There's nothing good that came from them. And we want to re, reinterpret all of what they did in light of what they've done recently. I don't think that's a fair assessment. I mean, can we not? Certainly we're going to be remembering these people for their spiritual failures, but, but can we not commend them for any good that they had done? I mean, Saul did start out well. He, he did start out well by removing all the demonic workers from the land. Remember, he said there's no more mediums and spiritists. That's not pleasing to God. We need to get rid of all of those. We need to remove them from the land. He also fought for God and Israel against, uh, and, and for Israel and against God's enemies. He raised a godly son, Jonathan, somehow. There, there's something to commend Saul for, even though the overall picture of his life is is godlessness but we still can commend him can't we and the truth is is that we'll come to know people like this who are either believers or unbelievers that we can commend them for the good things in their in their life even if we can't commend them overall i mean it could be a boss who hires you and who treats you well for years and provides for you a job that helps you to care for your family and then only recently forgets about how you have helped him to get to where he is. And, and then when he wants to get to another position within the company, he's quick to throw you on the, under the bus for an illegitimate reason. And we might want to color all of our boss's history in light of what he's done to us recently when we, we should at least commend him for what he's done for us in the past. Maybe it's a father who raised you to love God and, and who spent much time cultivating love for God and, and love for God's truth, but only recently he has, in a moment of weakness, committed adultery and divorced your mom. And we might want to look back on, on all that he did and say, well, I could see it coming. And, and why didn't I see it coming? And, and that makes sense of all this. And we take all the good things that he actually did for us and we want to just say that's how he was his whole life. You see how we, we quick to, we're quick to broad brush them based on what's happened recently. It could be a church member who invested years into our church through their time and prayer and service and giving, and then in the last year or two, they turn against the church. And they leave with a wake of divisive problems behind them and we might look at them and say, I never liked them, you know. Or, or they never did anything good for our truth. And the truth is that there is often much good that we can honor in the life 
of even a reprobate leader like Saul. And, and so we should look for those things and not be so quick to, to, um, to, to repaint the history of, of what's happened. Has God produced anything that's good out of that person, even though the last couple of years don't look too good? And, and so we would do well to, uh, to consider that with our own relationships. Number four, we cannot put our ultimate trust in human leaders. Here, here's one thing that we should learn from looking at the life of Saul. We cannot put our trust in human leaders. And what I'm talking about is not Jesus here. Maybe it would be better just to add a qualification there. Fallen human leaders. In chapter 16, Samuel departs from Saul and, uh, and, and then the Holy Spirit departs from Saul and an evil spirit comes on him and compels him to think that the person that is most loyal to him, David, is actually his greatest threat. And as a result, Saul spends the rest of his life pursuing David in order to kill him. God graciously protected David. But, but because Saul cannot get at David, he attempts even to kill his own son. Remember when Jonathan is at dinner and he wants to find out how his dad thinks about David? And, and Saul finds out that David's still not here and he takes the spear and throws it at Jonathan. Jonathan figures out very quickly what he thinks about David, right? He's ready to kill his own son. And later on, Saul successfully kills the priest who aided and abetted David, who is a fugitive now. And then in chapter 28, he completely alienates himself from the Lord, that is, Saul does, by seeking the spirit of Samuel through the medium at Endor. And so Saul's life starts out promising. He's young, he's attractive, he's tall, he's gifted, he's seemingly humble, but he fails miserably. And this is underscores for us why it's so critical that we don't ultimately put our trust into a human leader. Because leaders will fail. Now, it's not guaranteed. There, there are lots of leaders that make it to the end of their life without denying Christ, they, without turning away from the faith, without some huge scandal. Praise God for that. But if our confidence is in that leader, primarily, ultimately, it's going to rock our world when that leader turns away from God. Christopher Hitchens is a, a famous uh, atheist who has cancer. I think he's still alive at this point. And um, he, he, he says that, that one of the things, actually the major thing that turned him away from God and turned him to believe in atheism was that his, his father was a deacon at a Baptist church and was unfaithful. And, and that just shook him up and caused him to rethink. See, see what's happened is he, he, as a young boy even, started to put his ultimate confidence in a human leader. When that leader falls, what happens? His world falls apart. Friends, if we put our confidence in a human leader, okay, I as your pastor or your father, whoever it is, and that person falls... Don't be surprised when you start to question whether or not God is good. But here's the thing is when we put our confidence in God, ultimately not in the leader, but in God, then when that person falls, yes, it's going to rock our world, but not to the point where we're going to be taken away from our foundation and turn away from the faith. 
Because our hope is in nothing less than Jesus Christ and His righteousness. Not in that person. And that's why we constantly need to, to humbly follow. Yes, I mean, sometimes we, we go to the other extreme. Right? You, you have people who have been uh, hurt by divorce or something. You know, their, their, their father divorced their mother and so no, no guy can ever be good and, and that sort of thing. So I can't trust any leader. So you have that other extreme. But I think some, sometimes we, we get to, to, to build our churches around an individual rather than around Christ. We, we, we do it around a human leader. And as a result, our churches, are, they, they find it hard when tragedy and scandal strikes. And, and it's hard to, to recover from that if our ultimate hope is in a person, a fallen human being, because, in a fallen human being, because people will fail us. Okay, whether small or great, they're going to fail us. And if that's where our ultimate um, confidence resides, then, then it will shake up who we are and what we believe. And, and so we need to make sure that that we're constantly checking everything that our human leaders are saying against what the Scriptures say. That's what, why Paul says, and I try to remind you often of Galatians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, if anyone comes to you with another gospel other than the one that I gave to you, another one that you received from the apostles, let that one be accursed. Even if it's an angel from heaven or myself, let him be accursed. In other words, you don't just turn into a lemming. You know, this is my leader. I'm just going to keep behind him. Yes, I mean, do what Paul says. Follow me as I follow Christ. And I'm going to encourage you to do that with me. But when I stop following Christ, stop following me. Amen? That requires a sermon on your part. It requires a sermon to, to, to go against someone who you trust. Right? But, but that's because your ultimate trust is not in that person. It's not in your father. It's not in your mother. It's not in that great spiritual leader that you have. Your ultimate trust is not in that person. It has to be in God. It has to be in Jesus Christ. He is our leader. Number five. The demise of a godless leader is not really about that leader. The story of Saul's demise is not really about Saul primarily. We might look at this and say, well, what a tragedy. What can we learn from Saul? And, we, and that's good to do. But, but ultimately, this is about the disgrace that comes not on the name of Saul and on his sons because of how their bodies are treated after their death. It's, it's about the disgrace that comes upon the name of God. The Philistines were taking Israel's king and saying that they had defeated Israel's God. And now God's name is being defamed. It's being ignored. And as a leader, Saul was ignoring God's commands. And as a result, his people and his, his reputation, God's people and God's reputation, were being made into a laughing stock. And so the question is, who is going to stand up for the honor of God? Who is going to defend God's fame? Who's going to defend God's people? Who's going to defend God's possession? And in the largest picture, we have to say that God will. God will defend His own name. Now, that doesn't mean that we just do whatever we want, but, but the point is, is that, that this story is really about the defaming of God's name. That's why 1 Samuel 17 is so 
important to our understanding of this whole book. And that is that you have the Philistines coming with Goliath leading the charge and saying, you know, I defy the name of the living God. And I defy God's people. And what's David's problem? David's not looking to to make a name for himself, as his brothers thought. David's not looking to... uh, to, to make sure that Israel still stays in existence. We don't want them to, you know, to become extinct. That's not what his primary concern was. His primary concern was the glory of God. And so when he stands before uh, uh, Goliath, he says, Listen, I come to you on the name of the Lord Jesus... Uh, uh, not the Lord Jesus Christ, but on the name of the Lord. I come to you in His name, and you will not defy His name. And I know that I'm going to win today. He was concerned about God's fame. And so God uses means often to, to defend his own fame. And Saul was not concerned about God's fame. And so, so tragically, God used the Philistines to allow him to be killed. And then, and then in the process, God's name was, was defamed. And, and, and the, the, the good news is that, that God's name is going to be fine. God's going to, to restore the goodness of his name. In other words, the reputation of his name. How people view it. Because David's going to come along and be the kind of king that God loves. And then David's son's going to come along. I'm talking about his greater son, Christ. And, and he's going to be the perfect representation of what God is looking for. Finally, even in judgment, God will accomplish his purposes. Even in judgment, God will accomplish his purposes. We might not get warm fuzzies when we think about the fulfillment of God's promise of judgment, right? Saul, your kingdom, kingdom is being taken from you and given to another. We might, you know, not, not something that we come to our, our, our little Bible studies with and, and want to share what great hope we have because God fulfills His promise to judge. But what it should do for us is it should stir up confidence within us that even the darkest, in the darkest of times, God is in control. And aren't you thankful for that? That when the nations rage and the kings plot in vain, that our God is in control. That when pharaohs oppress God's people and when pharaohs hold their ground and are unwilling to let God's people go, we know that it's no surprise to God because God hardens the heart of Pharaoh. When kings rule in injustice, and judges deal in wickedness, we don't have to fear because the hearts of the leaders are in the hands of the Lord and He turns them however He wishes. So we should have confidence that if God rules in the darkness, that He surely will rule in the light. If God can follow through on His promises of judgment, can He not follow through on His promises to deliver us? Or the word that we use is to save us. Can we not have confidence in God? And this is the great news of the larger picture of Saul's story. That God accomplishes His purposes. It may not come through the means that we would expect or that we would like. But it certainly, certainly should create within us a hope and a confidence in what God will do for us. Both in judging His enemies and, and in delivering us. And that's going to happen. It's something that we anticipate and we look forward to. And we pray that our Lord Jesus would come quickly so that that part can begin. Let's pray.
Father, it is difficult to, to find much value in the life of, of a man like King Saul, but certainly there, there is some good that you did through him, and ultimately, even in his death, we see your hand of sovereignty, your hand of goodness, and that you ultimately are bringing about the purposes that you want in order to destroy your enemies and to, and to uh, protect and deliver your people. Lord, we are your people. We are the sheep of Christ's pasture. And we anticipate that you will lead us all the way until the end. We've seen you lead in the darkness and we're confident that you will lead in the light. So lead us, Lord. Bring about your final judgment through Jesus Christ who will come to reign in power. And Lord, before that can happen, he needs to come and, and uh, rapture us saints up into heaven with him that we're spared from the day of tribulation. And so, Lord, we pray with the Apostle John in Revelation that, that he would come quickly. Lord, set into motion the end times events so that we can be vindicated. Right now, the world is upside down in many ways. What, what is right is mocked at and seen as evil, and what is evil is, is um, exalted and seen as good. But there's coming a day when all that is right will be seen to be right and all that is evil will be seen to be evil. And that's when Jesus Christ comes to reign on this earth for a thousand years as the King. He will fulfill all that you anticipated and promised that would happen in your, your King. And He will rule with a rod of iron and we with Him. And Lord, it will be a kingdom that is... Uh, that is abundant in prosperity. It will be a kingdom which we will be able to come to a greater knowledge and love for you. It will be a kingdom in which we, church saints, will be able to to be um, freed from our sin because it will be either following our death or the rapture. And so, Lord, we anticipate that time with great joy. We long for that time when we will be vindicated. We'll be shown to be right where um, we know that there's coming a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of you, our Father. Lord, bring about that day. Until that time, help us to be able to reconcile in our minds the, the dissonant chord of evil and wickedness that comes into our lives and that is all around us in the news, in our families. Lord, help us to put our confidence ultimately in You and not into a human leader. Certainly, we gain much value from human leaders and we don't want to just uh, discard them. But, but Lord, our ultimate hope is in You and in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Lord, make us more confident in that even tonight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.